Welcome everyone, I'm Andrew Duckworth and I would like to thank you for joining us for our second installment from our follow-up podcast series on the COVID-19 pandemic, which is entitled COVID-19, The New Normal and How to Get There. Through this second series of podcasts, we hope to reflect on what has happened so far as a consequence of the pandemic for us in orthopedic and trauma surgery, as well as on our healthcare system as a whole. You'll hear from a range of colleagues and specialties on how we may best move forward as we start to consider restarting or increasing our orthopedic services around the country. There are several questions and unknowns regarding our hospital and staff capacity, patient safety and prioritization, as well as our ability to restart the various avenues of research that were being undertaken prior to the pandemic. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by our Associate Editor for Trauma here at the Journal, Professor Matt Costa from Oxford, who I know will be able to give us an exceptional overview and insight into the effects of the pandemic so far, particularly on the effects on research and the hurdles we're going to face in our attempts to return to some form of normality with regards to this. Many thanks for joining us today, Matt. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Matt, if we, um, if we sort, of, sort of start off, you know, it's well over two months since the first recorded death due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and a, a lot continues to develop and change in the UK and the world uh, during these difficult times. So can I just start with asking what your experience has been of the pandemic over the past few months from your setting in a large research active major trauma centre? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's uh, certainly been interesting times, uh, hasn't it? It's the major changes for life as we know it, really, never mind within the NHS. Um, I'd say I consider myself quite lucky compared to many of my colleagues in trauma and orthopedics because my practice is entirely trauma these days. I have been able to carry on doing the J job um, to a large degree. I haven't been redeployed to do anything else. So um, having said that, we've, we've got a very different rotor. Um, we we realised very early on that we had to, I think, protect the patients from the, from COVID. And I think we learned quite early that protecting the patients who were still coming to hospital who didn't have COVID problems from the response to COVID was perhaps a, a key priority for us. Mm. So, for example, there's a good reason why we want to operate on hip fractures quickly and get them up and out of bed and uh, back on their feet and out of the hospital as quickly as we can. And, and those reasons are no different when we've got COVID going on than they are mm. at any other times. Whereas other other conditions may not present, um, so sports injuries almost dried up really for us. Yes. Um, so yeah, we 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 got to grips with that relatively quickly, and then the other factor was we had to we had to really sort of protect the staff as well, really. So having rotors that kept as many people out of the hospital as possible, whilst maintaining the the key services, different ways of working, and so on, direct referrals from minor injuries units, and and so on. And then again, I guess the other big change was the precautions, really, just realizing that. Um, uh, how slow things were going to be to do our normal yeah. operating and so on, just because of the extra precautions. And also, and it's, it sounds like really small beer, but you only have to put your um, your face visor on, touching your ear, to realise three hours later that that's damn sore. So um, absolutely, absolutely. actually getting used to the new precautions has, has been a big change. Um, I guess in terms of the type of trauma we're seeing, uh, it, it's that's been quite interesting. There's um, almost no sports injuries, whether they're all saving them up or not. I, you know, hardly anything really from there. And my minor injuries units or referrals have been still happening, but uh, you know, far fewer. Major traumas less, although just starting to pick up. I would suggest. I agree. Yeah. But the fragility fractures have kept coming, and I guess there's some arguments said there's probably even more of them as people who previously had better home support are trying to struggle to do things over long periods by themselves. So, yeah, the fragility fractures, hip fractures, and so on have have not really changed so yeah quite quite different but I, I consider myself lucky to many of my colleagues with you know more elective practices who perhaps uh, had a, a heavier hit in terms of being asked to do things and not, not don't normally do as the day job. 
No, I completely agree, Matt. I think we found that up here. You do feel very lucky in the fact that, you know, we're, we're still having some normality to our day-to-day practice, particularly in trauma. And I'd sort of echo what you said. I think, I think we found, found very much the same up here in terms of the, that decline in those other types of injuries, but the fragility fractures just do seem to keep on, keep on coming through the door and nothing really has changed with them. And like you say, sort of emphasising what we've done already, but the importance of getting these patients through the system as quickly as, uh, and, as, and as efficiently as, as we can. Yeah. So, so moving on sort of back in, onto the, the research side of things, which I know you'll have great insights and a lot of experience with. Could you summarise what sort of has happened in your centre and I suppose nationally as well with regards to research and particularly the sort of the, the larger UK multi-centre trials that, that you're involved with? Well, I think um, the NHS quite rightly has had um, huge sort of plaudits over the last few months. Um, there's been no applauding of NHS staff in our house, I have to say, but um, you know, it's, it's very heartwarming to see people doing that around the country. That's great. Yeah. I think the, the NHR, as the research arm on the NHS, has perhaps been the unsung hero here. And uh, I, for one, am incredibly proud of what they've done behind the scenes to, to engage and mobilise in a, in a reasonably coherent, in fact, very coherent, if we're honest, way, um, a national infrastructure like that. Well, to be honest, it's unique to have the opportunity to be able to mobilise a national infrastructure. Mm. I'm thinking particularly the clinical research nurses um, through the clinical research network who, who were redeployed out of their comfort zone and with no fuss at all, they were, they were amazing, to, to recruit patients into COVID studies on a scale that no one else has been able to match around the world. So uh, just this morning, we were discussing the latest figures. There's now 60,000 patients have been recruited into COVID studies in the UK which is you know, more than anywhere else and is really remarkable. So, yeah, very proud of the NHR response uh, overall, particularly the Clinical Research Network. I think very much unsung heroes in this. Um, in terms of what's happened for national research, a bit of background might be of interest to the, to the listeners. So a um, decision was made um, 10 weeks ago to create a, um, a COVID urgent public health committee to review all applications for uh, new research in, in COVID from uh, around, um, uh, well, it's, it's England, but it's um, uh, involved in the developed nations as well. They've all got representatives on that, on that panel and that, that's been hugely helpful. Um, and they reviewed all of the studies uh, related to COVID that were coming through the, the pipeline. And just to give you an idea, the scale, at one point there were 400 studies awaiting review. Wow. Uh, literally hundreds of people with some really, really good ideas but many of which required resources that didn't exist to patients that couldn't be identified, but, and a lot of them were overlapping. So of those 33 were narrowed down, including several platform studies to test multiple interventions. Mm-hmm. So that's having a, a single cohort of patients, say COVID patients admitted to ITU, for whom this platform could be used to test multiple different interventions in parallel. So yeah. an efficient way of, of doing that. And that was set up very quickly. And those 33 are now open and recruiting, as I say, over 60,000 patients, which is just amazing. Unfortunately, the, the corollary of that was that the clinical research network infrastructure was essentially turned off for all of the other non-COVID studies, mm. which I think was the only sensible decision. And, and that really you know, was the only thing to do. But that meant that essentially TNO research in the UK has all but stopped. Yeah. Uh, and that's um, been a huge frustration for for me, for you, for the mm-hmm. journal, for you know everyone that's involved in that world, which is actually most of the clinicians in the country these days. Mm-hmm. But I think it was the only sensible thing to do. Um, uh, in terms of what's, what's happening locally in Oxford, um, Oxford's had quite a big part to play in a lot of the national studies. There's a lot of vaccine, huge vaccine research infrastructure in Oxford, and, which has swung into action. 
and a lot of the platform studies have been based around here as well. So uh, Oxford turned off, as in literally stopped every other study in its tracks straight away. And there was a process to apply for ex exemption through safety concerns. So we've got one stem cell study, a European project that's carried on, but only for safety follow-ups. And that's right. it. Everything else has been turned off. And I think that's been mostly the experience around the country. That's interesting. So in terms of, I say, like a, a, certainly um, any new trials or trials that are recruiting that all commence, have you managed to maintain any sort of follow-up for the other trials that were sort of ongoing at all? Has that been possible sort of, you know, sort of, you know, you know like as, um, as your colleague Dan has done with, you know, sort of using remote sort of follow-up? Have, have, you, have you considered anything like that or been doing anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So we, we're quite lucky. We made the move quite early to do an electronic uh, follow-up as much as possible. And where there are patient groups, um, hip fracture, for example, where that doesn't really work, then we have remote follow-up by a telephone. So yeah. through centrally, we've been able to carry on follow-ups for most of those um, studies. It's just where you're relying on um, research nurses, essentially, or infrastructure inside the NHS yeah. to do the follow-up. That, that, that's really been impossible. So yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that will change in the longer term is that move towards uh, remote electronic based data capture, I, I think is, it was happening anyway, but it's going to accelerate because it's the only really way of doing it under these circumstances. No, absolutely. It's, it's interesting in these times of sort of national crisis, it's a bit like some people liken it to wartime, don't they? You, you often do move forward with certain things, don't we? And like, I know, like, like you say, Dan has, has done sort of the remote follow-up, but early electronic follow-up, but I think that will probably be a big step forward as we as we uh, you know one maybe a good thing to come out of it do you think in the future yeah absolutely and it's it's been interesting um it, moving to electronic data capture doesn't necessarily improve your follow-up it, it's yeah different but if identifying at the beginning which the individual participants preferred method of communication is that is really helpful yeah for some studies like dan's work on on the force trial which is yeah. uh forearm fractures in children um you know that's electronic because it's young parents yeah. and with or parents with young kids and, and so they all do it that way whereas you need a different mechanism for fragility fractures and a different mechanism again for um, you know major trauma patients so it yeah it's it's not um don't want to go too far it's not it's not the panacea no, no. follow-up but absolutely it, it also has huge methodological advantages in terms of reducing transcription errors and, and so on and governance is better and so yeah. yeah no massive advantages i mean we've pretty much moved all the new studies these days to electronic uh, consent electronic data capture throughout across the board just because yeah. it's easy to manage yeah no absolutely so sort of that's sort of these intimate sort of moving forward what do you what do you think in terms of you know as you know obviously things are starting to change in terms of um lockdown and, and we're trying to move forward a little bit with the pandemic and obviously there, are, there could be well probably will be hurdles in the road but what do you think the short and longer term sort of um, plans will be for us to get back to those routine research activities? How, how do you think we're going to be able to do that? And uh, or what sort of time scale do you think? I know it's difficult, but... Well, that's a, yeah, it's a good question. And um, so it, there's a draft framework that the National Institute of Health Research have created about resuming the studies that were paused, including the trauma orthopedic uh, studies. Um, this has been reviewed by the Chief Medical Officer, um, and it, it's a framework. It's not a didactic list of of um, uh, indications for resuming research or priorities and so on. E each centre will have to um, work its way through that on the basis of its own uh, infrastructure, its own COVID activity um, and its own uh, priorities. But the framework essentially says that um, 
pause studies. So those studies are already on the NHR portfolio will be reopened first and newer studies, I'm afraid, will have to wait yeah. for their approval. And priority will be given to studies involving usual care pathways. So if patients are still coming to the hospital at the moment, um, then they will be a priority because those patients are there anyway. Whereas if those patients at the moment are not being seen, so some, uh, some elective services are not seeing any patients at the moment in certain areas, then uh, they will be, obviously it'd be sensible to keep those on the back burner. Yeah. And the, the other big factor is safety. So some studies have a higher safety risk than, than others. Mm. Um, and that would include studies involved surgical interventions. So at the moment, it would be difficult to justify doing research interventions in the operating theatre when it's reduced resource. So all of those factors. But there is a plan behind the scenes, but it, it's not going to be a... Um, a very straightforward roadmap will be a, a lot of bumps along the way yeah i think that is likely to start actually next week right opening some of the tno studies but the idea of getting back to normal service well i'm not sure that's ever going to happen and it's going to be months and months even if it does get back to anything like we experienced before yeah and, no absolutely matt and, and just going back to what you mentioned before about staff obviously you know a lot of the staff have been redeployed whether to be to clinical um the clinical front line or other other studies COVID related studies obviously there's a there's quite a, a, a big challenge there isn't it in terms of reintroducing them back into all the various projects they're involved with would you agree with that yeah i mean some of them have had uh, i think it comes amazingly as i said you know it's very proud of the uh, crm response particularly research nurses but um the, some of them are going to have trouble getting back into this. There's going to be a time for recovery and recuperation after Absolutely. some pretty, you know, distressing and, and taxing uh, sort of times. Spending all day, every day on the COVID wards is not tough. And I know that applies to research, you know, people outside research, but to the research nurses as well. So that, that's going to take a while. But I think my, my experience in talking to our, our teams locally is they're desperate to get back. They, yeah. They've actually realised that TNO research is, is not... <laughs> Although it's got its problems and its difficulties, it's not a bad place to be in the greater scheme of things. And they're, they're desperate to get back to the day job. So I think most of them are looking forward to, to getting back onto the uh, trauma orthopedic wards and, yeah. and seeing our patients and dealing with musculoskeletal problems again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so moving on from that, Matt, in terms of, um, I suppose, the trauma, we've already touched on it briefly, but the trauma and orthopedic related COVID research that's already been out there, sort of either been submitted to a journal that you've seen or published already, how would you sort of, what do you think of that so far in terms of summarising it for our listeners? What, what do you feel has been put out there uh, so far? Well, I think uh, because the, the response from the infrastructure in terms of both funding and support by research nurses has been on, on treatment and diagnosis of COVID yeah. itself, then that's meant that the, the really intensive studies have not had resources in, in TNO. Yeah. Um, however, that's not to say there's lot, not a lot of really useful TNO research into COVID that could be done. So I'm thinking for the future, more under, a better understanding of how transmission works, both for patients, what is their risk of coming into the hospital? What yeah. is their risk of catching the disease? What is the risk of passing it on if we've already got it and they're asymptomatic? Uh, and equally, what is the risk to staff of different procedures? Because we've all, I think, quite sensibly moved to a fairly extreme view that we're using precautions for any procedure involving power tools which is you know most of what we do yeah but is that really necessary and is that sustainable in the long term well we need to know it's safe before we change so i think there's a lot to be done there yeah. um in terms of what's been published i think we have some interesting reports come through of, of changing activity yeah um if i'm honest i think most of us were living in well not breathing it carefully breathing through masks but certainly that that work um 
you know, that experience is, has been reflected across the country. You know, trauma's kind of kept happening and Lexif hasn't. And, and so I'm not sure we need many more reports on that, really. Yeah. Um, I, I think that moving towards a situation where we're addressing those issues of transmission and, and how to really put an evidence base behind resumption of elective planned interventions, I think would be, would be really helpful and, and yeah. something I'd be keen to see from the community. I know that I know there's quite a bit of work going on in that, in our area behind the scenes. That's interesting that now, we were talking with obviously um, um, Professor Dad on our, our first podcast and he, we were talking about that very, very thing in terms of how we, it's a big unknown in terms of our ability, particularly for our elective patients, to quantify risk for them now. In terms of, you know, what was a, a routine hip replacement or knee replacement? How do we quantify risk if they, if they unfortunately do catch COVID? What, 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 what is that moving forward? And it's obviously data is very much needed there. Would you agree with that? Oh, I entirely agree. And you know, I think this is. I mentioned that we're going to some TNO research will resume, and, and some won't, or certainly will change forever. I think. Mm. And I think. Um, I don't think the NHR and the major funding bodies are going to change dramatically in terms of their mission statements and so on. That you know that that's interesting. Yeah. Be huge. But what I think will change is is the patients mm-hmm. um, and the patients' attitude towards interventions, particularly surgical interventions. Yeah. So I'm thinking that if you're having a, a procedure, a planned elective procedure, or even a, a trauma procedure that's not life or limb threatening, on the basis it might improve your outcome in the future, mm. I suspect patients are going to want to know with more certainty that it will benefit them yeah. rather than it might do, given that just coming into hospital at the moment is a risk. And yeah. as I think Faris mentioned when you did the podcast with him the other day, it, you know, we latest thought is that the risk, if you catch COVID in the hospital during the surgical intervention, puts you in a very bad position. So yeah. that's not something patients are going to underestimate. So, I mean, it may in a way accelerate what we're already doing. So we, we started in the UK doing research into relatively low-hanging fruit in terms of comparing two interventions that were routinely available and the move towards doing perhaps more fundamental questions about do we need to operate at all here or is there an alternative strategy has been has been slower uh, and it's often held back by the surgeons as much as patients but both need to be reassured that not operating is a sensible thing to Absolutely. do or at least a reasonable alternative and I think the patients may start to vote with their feet here and actually accept those studies perhaps more than they would do before and it's up to our communities to support those decisions from the patients. So I think there will be long-term changes. I think patients' priorities will drive the way that research changes in the future. Absolutely. No, I 100% agree. And you mentioned just the funders there. So you, your gut feeling, Matt, is that you don't think there'll be a sudden sort of over-focus, shall we say, on, on COVID-related projects. They think they're still trying to maintain that, that breadth of funding as best they can. Yeah, I think so. So I don't, I don't, um, so in the short term, the UKRI um, has put money aside, uh, new money allegedly, we'll see, um, to support the COVID studies. So the platforms that so on are funded through new pots of money, which are new grant allocations. Mm-hmm. And NHR has said, reasonably clearly or very clearly, that um, there'll be uncosted extensions to all existing NHR projects as the default. So no studies are going to get cancelled automatically. Having said that, there are maybe some studies that actually unfortunately turn out to no longer be feasible if the patients are not there and not going to be there for a while. Mm. The, the emphasis on funding COVID research is not going to disappear in the short term because there's, I think, widespread, and this is worldwide, not just UK, acceptance that this is going to go on for a while and we'll have new cases coming into hospitals, but also primary care in the community um, 
for quite a long time to come. And so there will be ongoing emphasis on COVID and probably quite rightly it's difficult to argue against that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I don't think NHI are going to change its mission to you know improve the health and wealth of the of the nation, and that will involve prioritising areas of research. To be honest, like TNO that don't have natural homes in major charities like cancer and so on. Yeah, certainly trauma doesn't. So versus arthritis, obviously very active in some areas of MSK research. Um, I guess the big worry is the the economy really, and yeah. the economy of the, of healthcare and the and research behind it because. It, it is going to cost uh, money to maintain the ongoing trials at the moment. And will there be another pot of money to, to fund new projects in the future? Mm. The truth is, I suspect that's unlikely, really. Uh, although at the moment, everyone's celebrating the NHS and to some degree the NHR as well, whether the politicians can really prioritise that over everyone else and everything else in, in society, yeah. who knows? So I guess there is a genuine concern about levels of funding for research across the board in the future. But I don't see the emphasis on inclusivity uh, for all parts of society and addressing issues that major other major funders don't address, uh, including musculoskeletal, won't, won't change for NHR and so on. That's interesting. And so, Matt, just sort of to finish off, really, uh, I, we always, I always try to ask, you know, our, our, our guests this. What, what do you, and I know it's very difficult because you can't predict the future, what do you see maybe over the next couple of months will be the, the road forward for us, both as NHS, but in particular trauma and orthopaedics? And what do you think the bumps in the road will be for services, you know, moving away from re- research? And, and do you have a feel of what maybe our new normal might look like in any way? Yeah, so it's, it's going to be it's going to be interesting times. <laughs> not, not constantly interesting. Um, yeah. I guess the, the big worry for, for me as a trauma surgeon, one of my colleagues working, uh, you know, in, in trauma, which I think is most of the TNO surgeons around the country, is we're anticipating a rebound, a bump. Yeah. Um, here, as as lockdown eases um, to a lesser or greater extent, then I think people, you know, are going to understandably get out there and start breaking things, perhaps in even greater numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I we're also slightly worried about rel- not the major injuries, uh, the open fractures and the, the hip fractures and so on, but people ignoring things that would have come to hospital before because they've Absolutely. been understandably nervous. And so late presentation of all kinds of things, I think we're pretty worried about that and already start to see a few people with, you know, even quite big injuries, forearm fractures that are just presenting late um, with the problems associated with that. So I think we're a bit worried about that in trauma. I think the the reality is we are slower turnover through operating theatres in particular. Mm. It is going to be a long-term issue. So kind of worried about flow there. Yeah. For my colleagues working in, in elective services, planned surgery, I think trying to work out what the priority is for patients on waiting lists and so on is really difficult. And yeah. there will be a natural tendency to, to fall back on specialty areas groups so you know my my patients in knee world are more important than yours in shoulder world and and so on but actually working out a coherent strategy across whole elective services to plan that is is going to be tricky and that's uh, uh, boa is already active in there uh, at the moment with a lot of support from specialist societies and i think that really does need to be coordinated to make the best choices there uh, yeah. for the patients um having said that i think some of the things that changed already will be long-lasting and, and to the benefits of patients mm. So we've, we've already, in Oxford, moved to a system whereby we're seeing pretty much every referral at the front door. Right. And that includes uh, teleconferences with the minor injuries units around us so that definitive treatment plans are instituted mm-hmm. immediately. And in the same way, follow-ups plans are 
being made by consultants mm-hmm. um, initially. And so limiting follow-up and where follow-up has been done, it's been done by a video conference wherever possible. Yeah. And quite honestly, why would patients not want that going forward in the future? Why come back to a new patient clinic in the morning after you were seen in the emergency department that evening and yeah. why come back to, to be told by me, yes, it's perfectly safe for you to move your wrist when I could tell you that over the phone and you know, my physio colleagues could give you some exercises and, and mm. some advice. So, so there'll be benefits in the long term and we're already starting to think about that. And I think a lot of places are moving towards those systems and will continue to do so. Yeah. Um, but I think we're in the short term pretty worried about capacity in the operating theatre in particular. Yeah. And for my colleagues in elective practice, I, I, I have great sympathy when I'm trying to wrestle with this conundrum of, you know, which priorities are the biggest and, and how do you compare one patient with another? It's really difficult. Very difficult. No, I totally agree, Matt. Um, well, Matt, I think that's actually all we have time for. So thank you so much for your excellent overview and, and, and insights today. It was really fascinating and really informative for our listeners. So thanks so much for joining us, Matt. Oh, great pleasure, Andrew. Thank you very much. And finally, as always, we'd like to acknowledge and thank our our many colleagues uh, around the UK and across the world for their tireless ongoing efforts over the past few difficult months in the delivery of care to our patients during this pandemic. We at The General thank you and we'll continue to support you in every way we can moving forward. Stay safe and well and thanks for listening.